First Timothy chapter one. I just want to tell you, it is such a joy to be able to see you here and welcome you, especially if you're a visitor or a guest. Perhaps you're out of town, you're visiting some family. We want to tell you it is so great to have you with us this morning. And when we talk about seeing sight is one of those things that we just kind of take for granted, right? That is, we take it for granted until we come to the place where we might realize we might be losing our sight. And I've, I've just got a question. How many of you need glasses or contacts to be able to kind of see and get around? I just, oh my, okay, whoa, this, well, almost everybody has got some issues there, right? I mean, it is really probably a very good thing that glasses were invented before cars, right? I mean, could you imagine what that would have looked like? That's really interesting. So it looked like almost most of the people, including myself, if like I didn't have my contacts in, it would just be like a blur. You'd be kind of greenish or whitish sort of stuff, and it'd just be a blur. That's all I would be able to see. Now, I'm curious, is there anybody that's actually braved LASIK eye surgery? Is there, do we have anybody, no one, a, a couple folks, and they're actually willing to admit it. In fact, I try to very hard to make sure that I never get this sort of stuff on my emails. You know, I got all these filters and I always like block sender. That's just kind of a regular. If I don't even recognize it. And somehow this appeared this week, LASIK special. And I'm like looking at this and it's like they're trying to sell a cheap used car because you can now get your eyeball taken care of for $299. It starts at $299 per eye. And I was kind of thinking like that, you know, you might be thinking, yeah, if I didn't have to wear contacts or glasses, you know, contracting your eyeball out to the lowest bidder starts to make sense, right? You're like, you know, that, that would be good. You know, $299. Well, you know, I mean, I could go away for a weekend or I could, could probably get, I could be able to see and never have to wear contacts. And so you might actually go 299 You might think that this, that little certificate is saying like there you do outstanding work. All it says there is it's now serving more markets. Okay. And so you might Whoa, that sounds like a pretty good idea until they actually take this strap and they strap your head to a table. And then you're looking at your discount doctor and you've already forked over your 600 bucks to get your two eyeballs taken over. And let me just tell you what's about ready to happen. You start thinking that they're actually going to take a high powered incineration laser to the cornea of your eye and start to microscopically reshape your cornea. And you're starting to remember something that your mom or your dad said. You get what you paid for. Does that, you know, and like, you're like, oh, you know, what happens? What happens if there's an earthquake or what happens if the doctor has some sort of nervous flare up and he's, you're looking at your discount doctor and he's got a manual in his hand and he's, and he's, you know, and all of a sudden you realize you're in trouble. And yet we recognize that sight is so important that we are so glad that we've got glasses and contacts. And for a few of you brave souls, you've actually done the LASIK eye thing. You've got far more faith than me. Because sight is so valuable because we see color and we see sunrises and sunsets and we see the expressions in people's faces. And and apart from being able to see, life would be very difficult. But let me tell you something even more important than being able to physically see. And that is to be able to spiritually see and perceive. Now, when we talk about spiritual sight, we're talking about the ability to actually perceive God to see reality as it really is from God's perspective as he's created it, to be able to understand his word, to be able to see life as it really is. And the reality is, is that many people, we could even maybe say most people, live with spiritual blindness and they don't even know it. 
In fact, you just function along this in this world and you are spiritually blind and you know there are these gaping holes, but you can't really see and you can't really do anything about it. And I would say that perhaps trouble seeing is humanity's biggest problem. For instance, the whole idea of the significance of Easter. I mean, what makes Easter significant? How do we actually see it? And I'll just tell you something. Uh, For many years in my life, Easter was my least anticipated holiday. Okay? I mean, it just didn't compare to like 4th of July or Thanksgiving or the just the granddaddy of them all, Christmas. Now, that was a holiday, right? Or New Year's. But then there's Easter. And, and for me, I just never really saw the significant of it, significance of it. Perhaps you're in the same boat. Maybe you're even here today and like, somebody drug me here. I'm at Easter. I'm at church. I guess I'm supposed to do that. But really, for you and just like for me for many years, Easter is about what? Bunnies, baskets, a big meal, and perhaps a boring church service. That was Easter for me. And you know why? It's because I simply couldn't see. I didn't have spiritual perception. Well, how do we see the significance of Easter? If you really want to see, you really want to understand what's the reason for rejoicing, you want to make sure that you understand 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16, because these two verses highlight and tell us what the significance of Easter is. And it actually tells us how you and I can truly experience not just the joy of this day, but the joy of the reality of Easter. So if we're going to see the significance of Easter, first of all, you have to see Christ for who he really is. And so look at verse 15, chapter 1. It says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so it's like this loaded statement. This is to be fully accepted. If you really want to see the significance of Easter, you have to realize that Christ Jesus came into the world. When it speaks of Christ, it speaks of one who is specifically anointed and set apart to actually bring about the redemption of his people. And it speaks of the fact that he's God, that Christ Jesus was his, is his human name and he came into the world. Now, on Christmas, that's actually what we celebrate. We celebrate that Christ came into the world. Jesus didn't begin at his birth. He is the eternal son of God. He's existed from all eternity. But what has happened is that God has sent his son into humanity. He was actually born as a baby, and he actually lived on this earth. He actually grew up, developed. And so it is Christ Jesus, notice the text says, he came in to this world for this specific purpose, to save sinners. That's why God sent his son, to save sinners. Now, you've heard sinner, and you've heard sinners, and you're like, okay, but what does that really mean? Is that just a fancy church word for bad people or someone that's not them? Actually, the word sin means to miss the perfect mark. It actually comes from ancient Greek archery. And so in archery, you would try to hit either the bullseye if you were shooting at a target, or you try to get the perfect shot if you were shooting at game. And if you should miss it, it literally was sin. It means to miss the perfect mark. When the Bible uses the word sin, it is pointing out to the reality that you and I, though we are created to know God and to enjoy God, we've sinned. 
We've missed it. We are trying to find life, fulfillment, hope, peace, happiness anywhere and any way else apart from knowing God. And that really describes our modern day living. We're trying to fill this void and yet we're trying to do it in ways that can never satisfy. We're trying to squeeze life out of either a person or some sort of thing or experience that really can't fill the void in our life that is meant to be filled with God himself. Now, there's two foundational uh, aspects of God's character that you need to understand. God is, first of all, he's a God of love. He actually creates people so they can experience his love. God is triune in nature, just like we sang, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And they actually exist in a plurality. They are one in essence. They enjoy a deep, profound fellowship. And because God is relational in nature, he has created people so that we can experience this relationship with the God Almighty. He desires it. He enjoys it. He is actually worshipped when his people come to him, speak to him, love him. And the reality is, is that that's why he's created us. But we, because we've inherited a condition all the way back from Adam and Eve, we've disobeyed God. We disregard him. And that brings up the second characteristic of God that we need to remember. Not only a God of love, but he's a God of justice. That means inherent to his character, he is absolutely fair. He brings about the standard of what is right and wrong. Because he's God, he determines good from evil, right from wrong. And evil and wrong is always trying to live life apart from God. It's sin. And just like when we break the laws of our land, so when we break God's laws, there is penalty due. And like it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every single person has, and the wages of sin is death. That's why Christ came. He came to die and pay the penalty on our behalf. Because of God's love he has sent, and to satisfy God's justice, he actually goes and dies in our place and pays the penalty for our sins. And Christianity is different than all other world religions because all other world religions are somehow trying to grope and grasp their way to God. They're trying to work their way or empty themselves to do things that might please God, so they think. But God knows that that can never happen. You can never work your way to heaven. God must actually satisfy our sin problem. And so he does by sending his son. In fact, Jesus made it crystal clear, John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so you might wonder like, well why doesn't God just by sovereign decree say sin is wiped out. It's all paid for. I've I've covered it. Why doesn't he just do that? Why why send his son to this earth? Why does he have to go and pay this gruesome penalty on this cross and and actually bear the weight of sin in his body. Why? Why not, why not God just say, it's all covered, it's done? Because God cannot operate apart from his character. He is just, and so he must satisfy justice. He can never act in disharmony with his character, and so he sends his son. Jesus came into the world to satisfy God's just wrath against sin, and he does so because he loves his people. Now, when we counter this kind of love, it's, 
it's hard for us to even grasp. I was reading, uh, there's a book called Written in Blood by Robert Coleman. And years ago, he recounts this this story of this this, uh, brother and sister. This brother had apparently overcome a pretty significant disease. And his sister then contracted the same disease and needed a blood transfusion. And so because they were actually an exact match, he had overcome this disease and she apparently, they both had a rare blood type. He's like, this, he would be the perfect match. So the doctor approached this little boy, Johnny, and said, Johnny, would you give Mary your blood? And, and Johnny's lips started quivering and he kind of like got pale. But he said, y- yes, I'll do that. Well, when Johnny passed Mary, he, he grinned and, and smiled at her. But as soon as he got back to that bed, he was just kind of like pale and kind of almost like lifeless. And they, the nurse put the needle in his arm, and, and he watched. His, his blood was actually flowing through this tube. And, and he goes through this entire procedure. Toward the end, the doctor walks in. He's going to just check on how things are going. And Johnny asks, Doctor, when do I die? And the doctor says, well, well wait, oh, you're, you're not dying. But he realized that this young boy, how he understood is that he was going to give his life for his sister. In actuality, he didn't need to do that. But let me tell you, Christ did it for us. And it wasn't like, well, he just has to give some of his blood and it'll be shed and we'll be covered. No, he had to give his life. And if you and I are going to understand the significance of Easter, we must realize who Christ really is. He is the sovereign God who has entered into humanity, and he has paid the penalty for sin, and he has risen on the third day to authenticate, if you really want life, life with God, I can provide it, because I have satisfied the penalty for sin, and I am offering you life if you will simply trust in me. This is the reality of Easter. In fact, Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you want to see the reality of Easter? You need to see Christ for who he really is. Let me tell you something else you need to do. And you find it right here in the text. You also need to see ourselves for who we are. Look what Paul said. He said, Verse 15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Literally, he says, I am the first in rank when it comes to sinners. And you're like, if you know anything about his background, uh, Paul, he grew up in a very religious family. He was Jewish, highly orthodox. He wasn't immoral. He wasn't steeped in idolatry. And yet he says he's the foremost of sinners. What? Why would he do that? It's because he understood that he had been religious without a genuine relationship with Christ. In fact, he had been a rejecter of Christ. He actually despised Jesus. He actually persecuted his people. He expressed his anger, and he thought he was making God happy by doing this, by persecuting Christians, seeing them locked up, and even watching as they were actually killed. Paul recognized what you and I must. We are significant sinners. In fact, until we see ourselves as sinners, we will never see the need for a savior. Until you see yourself for who you really are, you'll have no need for a savior. And it's really interesting. We try everything we to do 
to ignore the reality that in our heart of hearts, there is a lot of darkness. There is a total disregard for God. I mean, just think, even this past week, if we were to take a videotape of the stuff that you ran through your head and fixated on, anybody want to have a volunteer like, well, yeah. no, we'd like, no, not me, man. I, I don't want anything of that. Because we like to live a life apart from God. Our flesh craves it. When God says, this is wrong, it's unhealthy, this will hurt you, we're attracted to those things. Even when we know that they hurt us. And we see the consequences of sin in our relationships. And especially in our relationship with God. That's why Paul said, I'm the foremost of sinners. You know one of the things you have to do if you're going to really see the reality of Easter? You have to stop pretending. You have to stop pretending that that you're real good. And I know that everybody's all dressed up and you look great this morning. Awesome. But what's going on in your heart? If you're going to really experience the reality of Easter, you have to see yourself for who you are. I was reading about this Christian psychologist. His name is Mark McMinn. He spoke of a, a young woman who had recently become a Christian and actually became part of their small group. And She actually shared her testimony, her story of how she actually became a Christian. She came from a home that, like, positive self-esteem was everything. And her parents were always just talking about how wonderful she is and beautiful and smart and charming and witty and intelligent and how you are just like the perfect child. She lived in that environment. She grew up in an environment that basically was reinforcing how wonderful she is. And that's all great, except she knew that she wasn't. And she, as she talked about her experience, what was missing from her incubator of, ch- of a childhood self-esteem was that in the reality of her heart, she knew things weren't right. There were dark places. There was a moral decay. There was a need for healing. And she fell into the traps of promiscuity and drunkenness and actually dabbling in drugs. And she fell into these things because she was trying to fill this void And yet she felt like such an imposter because she was trying to fake it because that's what she was grown up to do. When in reality, she knew that inside there were things that were broken inside her. Things weren't right. There was a darkness. And it wasn't until she started hearing about Jesus and unconditional love that he offers. See, we kind of think like, well, we'll clean ourselves up. And if we look good, God's going to, oh, you're starting to look like kind of one of my children. I think I want you on my team now. It's not how it works. God loves all of you. And Christ has come to redeem you from your sin. He loves you, not just the good and the nice things you do. He loves you so much that he is willing to pay and transform the wickedness within that you might know his life. And when she came to Christ, she realized for the first time unconditional love. But if you and I are going to really experience the reality of Easter, we have to see ourselves for who we are. We're people who have missed the mark and we're trying to fill life with someone or something apart from him. Now, if you're going to see the significance of Easter, you have to see Christ for who he really is. You have to see yourself for who you really are. But this third, and this this is highly profound, you have to see our place in Christ's purpose. A lot of you, you're like, you know what? 
I understand about Christ and about him paying for sin. And he rose from the grave. Got that. Two, I actually, I know I'm a sinner. Okay. No, no acting here. I know what I'm really made of. But what makes Easter significant and profound is when you see ourselves in Christ's purpose. Look what Paul said. He said, I'm the foremost of sinners. You got it right. But he says, verse 16, yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. Catch this as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul said the the whole purpose for my living is that God wants to serve with my life to show an example of what it really looks like to believe in Christ and to experience eternal life. That word example, it could be translated pattern. It has the idea from the printing trade of being a first proof. And the purpose of his life was to show what it looks like when you believe in Christ and he changes you from the inside out. And when he talks about eternal life, It speaks not only of a quantity of life, it's never ending, but it also speaks of a quality of life. It is literally life from God. You experience intimacy with him. And it's really a foretaste of what we'll experience in heaven when we're with him. But we experience it now as eternal life. And the only way that you and I can ever have this life is if we accept him and trust in him and we do so by faith. God didn't rescue Paul because he wanted to save him from hell or bring him into heaven. God didn't rescue Paul because he wanted him to write parts of the New Testament or just proclaim the gospel. Really, the purpose of salvation for Paul and for us is that God intends to display his power, his grace, his mercy, and his love in his people whom are trusting in him. Really, salvation is, is really about God and him being glorified that his people worship him. Our benefits are secondary to God's purpose, or that he's exalted when his people are trusting in him. And that is the purpose of your life. Christ came to save sinners. In fact, John 3, chapter 3, verse 17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world may be saved through him. And that is possible Because Christ has paid the penalty for sin and he's risen from the grave. And so Paul wasn't interested in creating an image. And I was uh, recently I was talking with a professor who was talking about in his particular denomination. It's all about image, giving the image that you're perfect and life is always good. And after all, uh, you're you're working hard to make sure that God's happy that you're on his team. And Christians kind of fall into this pattern like, yeah, we want to create the image that we're perfect. We're always going to paste onto that smile. When Paul says, you know what? You want to be genuine and authentic. In fact, he actually, just a few verses earlier in verse 13, he actually said, you want to know my real story? I want you to know. He says, verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's who I was. But by the power of Christ... I have been changed. He's not interested in creating an image. He's interested in serving as an example. That means if that's going to be a reality for us, we've got to be trusting in Christ. 
for who he really is. Back in my old stomping grounds, back in Portland, Oregon, uh, in 2010, there was a very interesting interview that took place. I think if I, uh, you guys recognize that probably the guy up top there, probably one of the most famous atheists in all the world. You guys recognize him? Anybody know who that is? Yeah, that's right. Christopher Hitchens. That's him. In fact, he wrote a bestseller that's called uh, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. Okay. And then after that book was released in 2007, became a bestseller. He went on a national tour around the United States and he took on religious leaders, including evangelical leaders. And his idea was just to try to show how it's just foolishness and religion itself is corrupting society. That was his whole purpose. Well, he found a woman, this lady down here on the bottom, you may not recognize her. Her name is Marilyn Sewell and she's in Portland, Oregon. She wanted to interview Hitchens. Uh, Marilyn Sewell is a Unitarian minister. Okay, and so this was really she was actually quite excited that he was here. And so they had this interview. You can find this online. This interview took place in Portland, 2010. And I want to just give you just a brief of it. Sewell begins this this exchange this way with Hitchens. She goes, quote, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian. And I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Okay, so you get you see your question. Now, listen to how Hitchens answers this. This this is powerful. Here is our world famous atheist. He apparently just like looks at her in total unbelief. And then he says this, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. You really not in any meaningful sense are a Christian. And Sewell's like, whoa, totally thrown off guard. And then she immediately goes, uh, let me go someplace else because she realized that Hitchens understood That if you truly do not believe that Christ is the Messiah, that he has paid the penalty for sins and that he has risen from the grave on the third day. If you don't really have your trust in Christ, you are not in really any meaningful sense a Christian, no matter what you might call yourself. And there are plenty of folks that go under the label of liberal or I'm a moderate Christian that don't believe the fundamentals of the faith. But they, yeah, I I still want to have be called a Christian. The reality is. If you're not believing in Christ and him alone, him crucified and him risen, you are not in any meaningful sense a Christian. And a day like Easter has very little significance for you. And there are plenty of folks that simply walk away. They hear this message and they are not for me and they just move on. And this was true even with Jesus when he walked this earth. One of his top guys, part of his inner 12, a guy by the name of Judas, Though he knew everything that I've just espoused, he never found himself placing his life in Christ's hands. And hence, he never knew his peace or his purpose. Now, you're asking yourself, some of you are like, can God actually save me? Can he really rescue me from my sins? And you're thinking like, man, dude, you do not know some of the things that I've done. And that's right. I don't. And I'm not asking you to stand on your chair and go in public with it. But let me tell you someone who does. God does. He knows all about what you thought. 
what you've done, stuff that you deeply regret. And let me tell you, on the assurance of the scriptures that God has given us, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Can he do it? Our God is able. This is the significance of of Easter. Now, does it really matter if you trust in Christ? Well, let me just give you a scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This idea of Christ, the cross, his resurrection, to the world, it's foolishness. You're, you're wasting your time. You could be laying in bed reading the newspaper. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are going to face ruin and eternal separation from God. But the verse goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christ is our strength. He's our life. He is our reason for being because we are worshipers of him. So why is it that some people, why why is it that some people can't see this and don't get it? And they don't see their need for Christ. Well, let me tell you, the the scriptures answer that. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses three and four says, and even if our gospel is veiled, People can't see it. It is veiled to those who are perishing. And then he tells you why. In his case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel, the light of Christ, the light of the gospel, who is the glory of Christ, who is made in the image of God. They are blinded to who Christ really is. They do not see their sin for what it really is. And hence, they never come to a place where they are trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Christ came to save sinners. If you're a sinner, which we're all qualified, our God is able. You simply need to trust in him. See, our world promises hope, but it's full of emptiness. God offers an empty tomb and it is full of hope because Christ is risen. And perhaps there's not been an Easter like this Easter where we come and there's so much upheaval in our world, uncertainty, difficulties, and we have this gaping hole in our own life and we're like, where do you turn? And perhaps you're even wondering, you know, I I feel anxious, I lack certainty. I have all these pressures. What are you really counting on? What are you really you're building your life on? Is it fully capable of allowing you to stand strong in this life and to experience life with God in the next? Well, for 2,000 years, people have gathered. And they have gathered on Easter Sunday not to say, the stock market is risen. It is risen indeed. Or my 401k is bigger and better than ever. It's risen. It's risen indeed. It's not that the gross domestic product is risen. It's not that uh, the dollar or gold has risen. It is risen indeed. For 2,000 years, whether in poverty, illness, uncertainty, war, or even in the face of death, Christians have said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He's our hope and he's our life. And every single life 
has a story. There are there's commonalities, but every single life is unique. Your story is particularly unique. But let me tell you, for every Christian, there are certain things that are absolutely common. I'd like to give you the background of someone that you're probably familiar with, but you probably don't know the rest of the story. There's a man who was born in London, July 24th, 1725. His name is John. He was the son of a commander of a merchant ship. As this boy was growing up, 13 days before his eighth birthday, his mom dies. And it had a tremendous effect. In fact, this little boy became very bitter toward God, taking away his mom. His mom was a very devout Christian, loved God, loved Johnny. And so he found himself without a mom. His dad was a captain of a merchant ship, so he was almost always gone. When he became 11 years old, his dad started taking Johnny on voyages with him. And he made multiple voyages, in fact, six of them, with his dad as just a little boy living on a ship. In 1744, John was forced into service on a man of war, one of the English ships. In fact, it was the HMS Harwich. Once he got on board, he found out how intolerable the situation was for him, and he deserted, but he was quickly captured again. And once he was captured, he was publicly flogged, and he was demoted from midshipman to just a common seaman. Finally, at his own request, because he hated life on this man of warship, he requested to actually be exchanged into service onto a slave ship. And so he was. And he actually was on this slave ship where he became the servant of an extremely brutal and wicked slave trader. And he, I mean, life went from bad to extremely worse. He was actually traded like almost like a dog. In 1748, he was rescued by a, another captain of another ship who actually recognized this boy and knew his father. And so he rescued him. And, and, while, and ultimately, after he got rescued, though, John became the captain of his own ship. But not just any old ship. He became captain of a slave ship. Now, one of his biographers, Lindsay Terry, writes of John, it was reported at times that he was so wretched that even his crew regarded him as little more than an animal. Once he fell overboard and his ship's crew refused to drop a boat to him. Instead, they threw a harpoon at him with which they dragged him back into the ship. And it was, it's written that he was so just given and full of reckless abandon to sin that he was, it was beyond estimate as he's this captain, this young man of the slave ship. And John himself wrote of, wrote of himself, shame often compelled me to hide myself in the woods from the sight of strangers, especially had you known that my conduct principles and heart were still darker than my outward condition. While he is on this particular ship as the captain, he discovers a book on board written by Thomas Akempis called Imitation of Christ. And he starts to read it, but he's completely in disbelief. And then there is an event that takes place. They're, they're in a very serious storm, so bad that all their livestock was washed overboard. The men of the ship literally had to tie themselves to the ship in order to survive it. John is the captain. He's trying to steer his ship. He comes to a place where he realizes they're going to face certain peril. And he cries out, Lord, have mercy on us. And somehow they survive this storm. And later when he's back in his cabin, he's reflecting upon this event that he actually cried out to God for mercy when he thought that he was about to die. He actually marks May 10th, 1748 is the day of his conversion. He eventually left his slave ship 
and he actually became a tide surveyor. And while he is a tide surveyor, he studies to be a pastor. And he grows as a Christian, as he understands Christ and grace, his own sinfulness and how Christ has redeemed him. And for the rest of his life, he preached this gospel, this good news about Jesus. And at age 82, John wrote, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. He went on to write a hundred songs. And when he died, his tombstone read, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel, infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. And you might recognize his most famous song. In fact, it is the most popular recorded song of all of history. It's Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. And so let me ask you, what is your story and what is your song? Today, if you have not, today is your day to trust in Jesus and to know the amazing grace of God that has been given to us in Christ. We see the significance of Easter only when we trust in Christ alone for salvation and for life. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. What a glorious morning. Because this is the, the day of the year that the world stops and recognizes that Jesus, though crucified and laid in a tomb, has risen from the grave. And amazing grace is available to each and every one who trusts in him. And I pray, Father, that if there is someone here that has never placed their faith and trust in Christ, that right now they would simply pray with me and say, Lord, you know all about me and my sin, and I finally understand who Jesus is. You've got my full attention. Even if I've made a shipwreck of my life, right now I turn from my sin and I trust in Jesus alone. Would you fill me with your life Guide me with your spirit. Thank you for cleansing my sins. And may I know the nearness of you in this life, the power of your presence, the greatness of joy. May I understand and know life in Christ. May that be the song of all of us here today, that Christ is risen from the grave. He is risen indeed. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.